I'm going to be reading today from 1 Kings chapter 19. The first four verses. I'll be reading that out of the New King James. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, those that had died, that's what would amount to him tomorrow at this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And verse 4 says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat under a broom tree or a juniper tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And, you know, often when you hear this part of Elijah's story, you hear it run together with this second part. And I just wasn't feeling in my heart that I had the green light for that. And so I today am going to expound, if you will, on those first four verses. I love the fact that what had just happened is you just had this man of God after three and a half years that the drought had ended, that he had just run, uh, reported 14 to 16 miles on foot to get to this place, to get to Jezreel. And when he gets there, he is greeted with Ahab telling Jezebel everything that he had done. Now, Ahab was evil, Jezebel was reportedly even more evil. And, and what I love about this is this fact. The enemy knows God's power. Oh, I love this. He, he knows God's power, but what he tries to do is he tries to twist our perception of God's power here on earth. See, the enemy, he specializes in throwing accusation. And when he throws accusation, one of the greatest things, we can do so many things as Christians, but one of the things that I wish that we would see more in Christians is reminding the devil who we represent. You know, when there's pushback from the devil, I just want to see God's people rise up instantly and be able to tell the devil, no, you've got it wrong. This is where it is. The enemy knows that he cannot tear God down. And so what he does is he goes after those who represent God. We live in a world that is filled with buzzwords right now. There are worldly buzzwords that the enemy, I feel like, has given the script to the world to try to come against God's people, to try to discredit God's people, to get them to second-guess themselves, really to get them to be quiet. What he wants to do is he wants to tarnish your image as a Christian because he knows that will tarnish unbelievers' perception of God. That's truth. So Ahab, he chooses these buzzwords when he's talking to Jezebel. And notice what he says. He's like, Elijah executed all the prophets with the sword. 
Notice he dropped the words, all the prophets of Baal. These men weren't prophets. These men were pretty much witch doctors who had no problem cutting themselves. They were pagan worshipers who were into killing babies for their worship. There was no prophetic about this. And so he's twisting this to her because he's trying to play on her emotions. And Elijah, he killed them with the sword. Do you know how long it would have taken one man with a sword to take on 450 prophets and 400 other prophets, if you will? It wasn't just him, but he's trying to work her up into this rage. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I know that's true about my heart. But what I also have found about my heart, not only is it deceitful, it is easily deceived. Oh, it's deceived. When the devil can't win one-on-one, he's going to try to bring in reinforcements. This prophet contest that went on, the rules were simple. The devil had his opportunity to make fire fall, but he couldn't. And so instead of going by the rules, he's going to go around those. And now Jezebel, once she hears, you know, and the contest said this, and the God who sent fire was the real God. Instead of going by that, now she's going to kill the man of God. The tactic that's being used here is attack the messenger. Attack what men and women see about those who call themselves someone who walks with God. Through obedience, some of you have given others glimpses of Jesus Christ. Some of you, through your witness have allowed others to see how Jesus works in your life. You have stood for truth in a world of lies, and the devil hates that. He wants to come after you. He wants to tear you down. He wants to intimidate you, but I need you to understand that there is no spiritual move that does not have a ripple effect. And so in those times when you have stood up, it's caused a ripple effect, and he hasn't liked that. It's almost like when you go to a pool with people who have their kids at the pool, and you ever see people and they get their like flamingo float out, and they're just going to be on their flamingo float, and they're going to sit there with their Yeti cup and have a drink. I'm not pointing this at anyone. But, you know, and the kids start cannonballing in the pool, and it bothers people. They don't want a ripple effect. That's kind of where the devil is. He doesn't want a ripple effect right now because he's trying to relax and just watch your world burn. Looking at this, though, here's something you need to understand. The directives haven't changed. Your directive from God, your directive as a believer, to speak the truth, to declare the glory of God, to affirm when he moves in a situation, to broadcast his greatness among people. Be that person. Be that person. God makes the fire fall. It's my job to be faithful. There are times I can get ahead of God. We talk about that often here. And when I do that, it's almost like there's this wall that I'm going to hit. And Elijah's about to hit this wall. What I love when I read these verses, in verse, let me see, three. And when he saw that. This word is lowercase, and this word's in italics. There's emphasis on it. When Elijah saw that Jezebel wanted to kill him. Now, understand this. This was during a time before technology had provided closed captioning. There was no closed caption. He did not see that. He did not see anything. He just got flustered here. 
There is truth in this, that in this walk, we're going to experience some lowercase and italicized that's. We're going to. That's just part of this. It's going to hit sometimes, and it's going to hurt sometimes. But when that happens, we need to begin to remind the enemy of the all caps kind of that. And with Elijah, he had a few of those moments that were that moments. Oh, you've got a queen Jezebel, she's after you. That's a lowercase. How about this one? That God, through an earnest prayer, did not send rain for three years. No, roll with that. That was it. Go with the next one. What about this one with that? That God sent ravens who are birds that are not known to really share with one another, much less people, to feed you. How about the next one? That during a time of famine, that God provided a specialized brook, personalized just for you to drink drink from. The next one, the Elijah times, that, that God makes the fire fall. Roll with it. Many slides you got, I can go. Oh, that, that the flour and the oil did not run out, that God said, I'm going to have a widow who doesn't have anything provide for you, and you're going to be witness to the supernatural happening. That. What do we have here? The first recorded miracle of someone being raised from the dead because Elijah went where God told him to go and did what God told him to do. That. Do we have another one? Oh. A cloud the size of a man's hand. Hasn't rained for three and a half years. The audacity of faith to say, go look in the sky, go look again, go look again, because my God is going to send the rain. And then finally, not just that, but the sky grows black and there's abundant rain, the kind of rain that means bring your galoshes, kind of rain that's coming down. When I have been there and I have seen that, no one can tell me that my God can't. Lowercase that, it makes me run away. Lowercase that, oh, it, it hurts, it makes me run away, it hurts my feelings, it makes me second-guess myself and I run away. The uppercase that, for me personally, when it hits me, it melts me. But the uppercase that is that that causes people to shout. It's that that causes people to say it's not over. It's that ability to say that last miracle was not the last miracle. That, that is what God does. That caused Elijah, the first one, to run because what am I going to do? You have this man that for three and a half years had been walking with God closer than most people I can imagine had walked with God. But why would he have run? It exists in three words in that scripture. It says, but he himself but he himself. If you want to know what causes us to run from destiny, it's but me, myself, but you, yourself. Once we start getting our eyes off God and getting our own head, we start directing and we don't let God direct. But here's what's wild. God can make you run too. The God run comes from a place of confidence. When I think of the God run, do you know what I automatically think of? I think of 1 Samuel 17, 48, and Goliath. As he begins to move closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. 
See, we live in this world that says you don't even belong in the battle. But imagine the look on the enemy's face when you break into a God confidence run going after the things that he has told you to go after. You have Elijah here. That kind of boldness. I don't care how many surround me, I'm going to stand for God. 1 Samuel 17, these words that are spoken by David, I love. And all those assembled here will know that it's not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. All will fall down before God. I'm going to fall down on my knees before God. All are going to fall. Every enemy that raises itself up before God, when Elijah gets in his own head and he himself, he doesn't just run away. He runs ridiculously far away. It says 80 miles. I'm sorry, but if I ran 16 miles yesterday, I am not running 80 miles anytime soon. He runs 80 miles. He runs all the way to the wilderness. He's away from everyone. I'm going to run a little bit farther. Once you get he himself, you get that Jonah kind of thinking, that messed up Elijah kind of thinking, like Jonah, you know, God tells you to do something, well, I'm just going to go buy a ticket to a boat. That makes sense, because God can't get me there. He goes to a place of seclusion. He prays to die. Both Jonah and Elijah, they're these heavy hitters, but both of them came to frustrating points in their lives where they were saying, this is just too much, I just want to die. Some of you spiritually, and I'm just going to be real, you are at places where you're just like, I don't even know what this means half the time, and I am just ready to give up on it. I'm ready to walk away from it. And that's bold talk from a church, but these are the kind of things that when you talk to people and they're real about things, you hear the real sometimes. Let me say these words, it isn't over. It is not over. And the fact that you may have sat saying, God, end it, end it, end it, I am reminded of a certain psalmist by the name of Garth Brooks that says, thank God for unanswered prayers. Some of you, God didn't answer your prayers, and I'll tell you what, he has more for you to do. It is time to get in there. And you have sat and you said, it is enough. I can't take anymore. How about we trade that up for God is enough? God is enough. Whatever situation it is right now, God is enough. The fear angle would have you second-guessing, oh my, the evil queen wants to kill you. And I would be thinking, you know what? I was just, and I'm doing the math, 450 plus 400, that's like 850, give or take a few, because, you know, maybe we didn't count everyone. If they didn't kill me, then this queen's not going to kill me. And I think that's what we need to look at. There have been things in your life that have seemed daunting, but you need to throw it in the devil's in his face, and you need to say, you know what? This isn't the time. My God didn't bring me this far to abandon me. And so some people, when you read this theologically, they're like, and Elijah always had a great fear of losing his life, and this is what caused him to run. When I'm reading it sometimes, though, I almost feel like maybe Elijah ran because it didn't work out the way that he thought it would. Where's the revival? Where's the revival? Don't tell me you haven't asked that question. Where's the revival? Well, I've seen at the college campuses, where's the revival? Where's the revival? 
Like, you're glad that it's happening in another place. We're asking, where's the revival? Where's the revival in my church, in my community, in my home? Where's the revival? I have been faithful. I have been sacrificial the way that God has wanted me to, but things have remained the same around me. Maybe it wasn't the fear, but it was the disappointment that made him run. Maybe some of you, you're not scared, but you're running because you're disappointed in this moment. See, it wasn't ever the death threat. Good Lord. Don't you think a lot of people didn't like Elijah? When you stepped up to be a prophet back then, it wasn't a popularity contest. You as a Christian, I'm going to tell you what, you have always lived under a death threat because the devil doesn't like you. The thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and destroy. That is truthful right there. Good Lord, the devil hated me so much that he tried to end me before I was born. He's working overtime there. Maybe some of us have unrealized expectations. Unrealized expectations can bring down some of the most faithful at times. The Lord whispers things to you sometimes. And maybe this morning he's just wanting to whisper, just because he is not working the way that you think he should work doesn't mean that he is not working. Here I am telling an almighty God how this is going to play out, and here's an almighty God saying, you have no clue. But again, where is revival? Some of you, God, I did this for you. Where is revival? God, I've dedicated years of my life. Where is the revival? God, I've obeyed even when it was weird at times. Where is the revival? And Pastor Craig, he shared these four things, and what I love about the Bible is this. I love the practical wisdom that comes from God's word. And he shared, and he said, there are four guaranteed ways to burn out. And so if you're here today and you are looking for ways to spiritually burn out, follow these four steps. If you are looking for ways to not burn out, then don't do these things, okay? Avoid them. So here we go. Number one is wear yourself out. Wear yourself out. It hit me as I was praying the other day. David. David was not called to slay a giant every single day of his life because that wasn't sustainable. Some of the greatest things that heroes of faith did, they were not doing every single day. Like, you know, when you read that, it was like, and, and Moses went back and, and the sea part again and again and again and again. No. Because that would have worn him out. He had more things to do. And I say that because we wear ourselves out sometimes by trying to over-spiritualize staying in one spot when God is clearly saying, move on. Wow. I'll take that one. The second one is shut people out. You want to burn out spiritually? Then shut people out. It says in these scriptures that Elijah, when he went running, he left his servant. He did not want his servant around. You shut people out. Now, I should put a little star by that and be like, let me clarify. Don't just shut people out, but shut God's people out. Oh, see, the devil, he will send us people around us for any given season that can keep us down. But he knows that when you're around God's people, people who have your spiritual number, people who are your iron, if you will, people who are going to call you out on some nonsense, he does not want you to be around those people. 
That's the goal. You know, it's funny because I've had those times where I've just been like spiritually down and I'm like, yeah, like I don't want any Aaron holding my hands up so we can have the victory. Like I'm, I'm sulking right now. You know, I don't want no Joshua telling us that we can take the land because I don't want to take the land right now because I'm in a place. We separate ourselves from those who try to sharpen us. The third thing that he says here is to focus on the negative. You notice that Elijah says, I am no better than my ancestors. Now, this one bugged me. I'll tell you why in a second. Number one, no one asked Elijah. No one asked. He just offered this. I am no better than my ancestors. In a way, here's what we can surmise that he's saying. They were not able to eradicate idol worship. They were not seeing this great revival that I'm hoping to see. So therefore, I'm no better than them. Why it bothers me is because I often say, and when it comes to this church family, that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And how dare I? How dare I take my molly grub spiritual place and project it on people who walked in places that I could never even understand? Their part of the mission was different than your part of the mission. If this is a spiritual race that we're running, could it possibly be a relay race and your leg of the race is not going to look like anyone else's? You were called to be faithful because faithfulness will always speak life. It will always speak life regardless of the situation that you are in. The last one is to forget God. Yet clearly, this is what the world's trying to do. You look around every facet of the world, they are trying to forget God. But you're called. You are called. You have been called. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Some of us need to understand that the stands we're taking for God, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting him. But don't stop. Don't stop. The proof of God is everywhere. It is everywhere. And when people look, there's no way that they can't see him. People reject God despite the evidence for, for the contrary. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament speaks of his handiwork. The other night, my cousin on Facebook had posted pictures. She's up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, and the northern lights there were so bright. And when I looked at that, I'm thinking, how can people say there is no God? You know, I see that, that picture of Ruthie, and underneath that bow somewhere, there was an infant. And when I saw that, I'm thinking, I know there's a God. I know there's a God. The evidence is there. Why can't they see what I see? Maybe some of you are crying out. You're asking that. Why can't they see? And here's the truth, because they are dead. Dead people can't see. Just like you and I were dead before Christ's saving grace got a hold of us. The Bible says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins. And so when we get frustrated with the world, it wasn't too far back when we were the world. And understand that it's hard for them to see. He 
brought you out of that in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. A hungry heart will always see God, church. Do you know what I've been praying lately? Because here's something that I admire. It's a weird, maybe a selfish prayer. I love when you are with people. And things are going down and it's getting heavy. And in your heart, you're scared. But there's that person. There's that one person that speaks with confidence of who God is. And everyone, whether they want to admit it or not in the circle, starts feeling the Holy Ghost. That's what I've been praying lately, that when it comes to those situations, that God give me the boldness in situations that may look dark to be that one to speak your truth, to invite the Holy Spirit into the situation so that the atmosphere might change. That's what I've been praying. That wording, it's funny because sometimes people, like it's a scripture that'll motivate you and other times it's a quote that I'll see. And lately I've just been challenged with the get busy living or get busy dying. In a spiritual sense, that's from Shawshank. In a spiritual sense, that's where it is. I was just telling my wife the other day, you know, when you, you hit a certain point in your life and you're doing the math and you understand how long people tend to live and you think, it's time to double down. It's time to get serious in a way that I haven't been serious before. It's time to leave it all on the field in the way that I haven't left it all on the field before. It's time to get busy living here. Because when I come to a place that I start to forget God, the truth is I start dying. When I start looking through spiritual eyes, when I get in me myself, then I start dying. Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Peace, not just life, but peace. Oh, the God we serve. The God we serve and the things that he can do. And we can say, but the God that Elijah served. The Bible's not a storybook for that time. It is just as powerful as right now. And we need in boldness to say the God that I serve. I serve a God who can do this. I serve a God who has done many things because the directive, it hasn't changed. The God that I serve, he has not changed. The way that revival is going to come has not changed. I need to humble myself. I need to pray. I need to seek his face and I need to turn from my wicked ways. It has never changed. And once I begin to do things, God will begin to work in the land in the ways that he does what he does. And what do I mean by that? I serve a God who can speak into nothing and he can speak things into existence according to Genesis 1. I serve a God according to Genesis 22 that he can send a ram in the thicket that when I think the story's about to have a sad ending that my God says I'm about to show you something that you haven't seen before. I serve a God that he can send thousands of an army home to leave one man with 300 without weapons so he can say I said the battle belongs to me, but do you really believe it? I serve a God who can give Samson 
one more push. Strength from one more push. And some of you, you may feel like you're in battle mode. Some of you are ready to go. And some of you are standing there feeling like Samson, like you have been, this was the end, and one more push, one more push. Because here's the thing, I guarantee with God, it's not the last one. It is not the last one for you. I serve a God who will bend down and write in the sand when the stones are about to fly. I serve a God who could have whispered to call Lazarus out of a tomb, but he spoke loudly so that all those standing around would witness what was about to happen. That's the God that I serve. I'm going to close in a moment. You know, next week I'm going to jump into the part of this that seems to be my favorite part, if you will. But God's heart's always been for the one. He's going to show this to Elijah. His heart has always been for the one. It's always been a shepherd's heart from the very beginning. I need to say today to someone that's here that you're not too far gone. Let me clarify that by saying don't stay where you are. If you're in the presence of God, then his grace is able to do things right now. And I'm saying to you that someone needs to hear what I'm about to say because there's this Elijah feel I'm going to stay. God wants to remind you of his truth. There are times that God will really mess me up because God will use things that Maybe you've said to other people, and he'll ask you the same question. He ever do that to you? How long will you falter between two opinions? Those are the words that Elijah asked on that mountaintop, but I would ask that today. You're either at a place where I've had enough or God is enough. It's one of the two. What I'm praying as a church, is that this becomes a magnet for souls giving their heart to Jesus Christ. But I feel when I ask that, that God almost prompts me to say, do you think that it's going to be around this altar all the time? Or do you think it's going to be from the one-on-ones? Do you think that prayer is going to be prayed in a break room or a lunch room? And then those people will come to this church and they'll be discipled. It may not look the way that I think it's going to look, but it's coming. It's coming. Something that hit me with the God is enough is Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. And this second part, I often hear people misquote. And every tongue that shall rise up against you in judgment, thou shalt condemn. We often hear... Every time, and, and it will fall. You've heard people say that. But what I love about this is it gives me the God audacity to say that there are times when the enemy brings accusation that it is going to be me standing up in the power of Christ, condemning that word and calling it down. Calling on the name of Jesus, saying to him, do the math. If the 450 didn't bring me down, the Jezebel won't bring me down. Isaiah 59, 19, and you're here and you're thinking, but you don't understand my situation. feels like I'm being overwhelmed. It feels like I'm about to drown in this. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of God shall lift up a standard against him. It's time to remind the enemy of that. 
of that, that just when you think that you're about to take me under, my God raises up a standard. If you will stand, please, I just want to pray with you.